Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast, where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. Happy Tuesday, guys. Welcome back to the first Eat, Train, Prosper episode of the brand new year. We have a Q&A episode, but before we jump into this, Brian, what's the latest with you? It's not the new year quite for us. We're recording this, so it's a bit of a facade. It's it's late December for us. We're recording our new year episode, but we just finished Christmas and uh, Christmas was awesome. We had family in town, uh, Kim's mom and uh, and sister, and uh, for the most part, it was good. Like... Uh, the mom's a little bit um, COVID paranoid, maybe is, would be the right way of saying that. So so every time someone sneezed, it was like, you should take a COVID test, go get COVID tested, like a little bit of that type thing. But, um, you know, she's old, we want to take care of her. So it's kind of what comes with having extended family in town. Um, started my new... Uh, my new cycle, which is rad, uh, the one we discussed uh, in prior episodes. Uh, so just today... I had to do hamstrings and not quads, even though my program called for uh, quads and hamstrings today because my quads were still really sore from Thursday. So it's now Tuesday, uh, which is like five days later or something like that. And my quads are still too sore to train. So splitting it up, doing hamstrings today hopefully do quads tomorrow. And it actually kind of made me think that maybe that's just how I should do it going forward anyways, um, because I had such a good hamstring workout and I I couldn't imagine doing what I just did, uh, seven work sets of hamstrings, and then also be able to put anything reasonable into quads. So um, I had one of those already in the program, like the the second leg day was a ham day and then, and then a quad day. But I think I'm going to do that on the first leg day too. So it'll extend my cycle out from eight days to, to nine days essentially, um, and just split that work over two days, give myself an extra rest day. And I think that's cool because it also sort of specializes the quads along with the hams, uh, which, you know, as we've discussed, I need both of those. So uh, it's definitely now a a leg priority cycle. And uh, so there's across the... I'm training each leg uh, twice. So there's four leg days and there's three upper body days. So... um, yeah, I'm excited about that. It was it was a great hamstring session today, uh, doing the volume ramping thing. So I added one set from last week, and uh, I'm sure we can discuss more about this maybe in the next episode. But we have a ton of questions to get to. So, um, how was your Christmas? What's going on with you? Christmas was good. I actually elected to spend Christmas by myself this year. Um, Jenny went to Florida to see her parents. I, I stayed back here and really just spent the days working, um, which I'm, I'm guilty of. But I mean, if I'm being very, very frank, like right now, I am just very, very motivated with work stuff. I know I've spoken about a lot of the changes I'm making with my own coaching, um, with an education course that is now coinciding with my coaching. And I'm just head down. Like that's my priority. I'll spend holidays by myself if it means I get to get this stuff done and get it out to people that need it. I'm also starting to shift a little bit of my targeted clientele to be newer kind of a newer uh, coaches or aspiring coaches because there's a big gap between what you get in like your L1 nutrition and coaching certifications and then what you run into with clients and stuff, uh, especially as the landscape of the clientele changes. 
So that is something I'm very, very excited about. Basically just being who I needed, you know, when I was getting into it. And I'm very, very fortunate that my very first coach was someone who was very on the like new leading edge of things. And it took me down, you know, rabbit holes that I never, never would have been on my radar. And it really helped, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Propel me, like my knowledge and my coaching, you know, from an early standpoint. So I just want to be that for, um, your coaches as well. So that is the the big updates for me. And then from training a little bit, uh, just really playing with a lot of the N1 stuff still. So um, at the practical, it was a lot of drinking from a fire hose. And I was like trying to hold on a little bit with some of the knowledge. But now it's just like, okay, I have this machine and me and 20 minutes and I'm going to like figure it out type of thing. And that's been a lot of fun. So for instance, one of the, the, a movement that I just could not get right, you know, at, at the practical, I was performing the other day and everything just clicked. You know, it was in the amount of tension that I could get through the lateral head of my triceps with just two sets of eight was absolutely insane. They were so blown up from that. And it was like, I was like, finally, like it clicked. I don't feel stupid anymore. Right. I understand it. And it, it just, it, Things like the small things can really matter. Um, the other example that I will give is doing the split squats, right? So like the the front foot wedge, rear foot elevated split squats. Yep. I'd set them up or I didn't set it up. Shout out to Cody at N1. He helped me set up for what I needed to do. And then I was kind of struggling to recreate that myself in the gym a little bit because like it was working, but I was still getting a lot of that the tension in like my glute on the front leg when I wanted it to be quad and I was pushing like my leg all the way far forward. And then what I realized, and it was like this little thing, I need my back foot to be higher in the air than my front foot, because just by doing that, it's going to shift more of my balancing weight into that front foot, which will put so much more stimulus through my quad. So it's like little things like this that you just pick up on as you play and iterate that make these like I don't know. I mean, it completely changed. Like now my glutes weren't, you know, getting fatigued at the end of the set. It was my quad that was literally failing. So it's just cool, right? Just playing, learning, exploring, taking the new information I have and seeing how I can apply it first in myself so that I can then later hopefully provide better information for other people. Yep. No, totally. The tricep one is a good one. And that movement you were talking about, um, we were actually talking about this briefly off air, but he was talking about this one movement from N1 that we learned where it's a lengthened position for the lateral head where the cable's coming from like the other side of your neck essentially. And then you're yeah. pushing out. Like a, um, like a karate chop type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and that one was super hard for me to get to because you have to position your hips and your body in such a way that the cable runs nice and smoothly and that you're not fighting it at any of the different ranges of the motion. So, um, that's a really good one. And then, um, to kind of corroborate that story of just getting it right and it being so effective. Um, I was doing my, uh, final upper body session of, of my first week and it was like a full body upper body. So I really only had two sets each for biceps and triceps at the end. And I did two sets of the, the cross cable, which is the lengthened for the long head. Mm-hmm. Um, the one you were talking about lengthen for lateral head, this would be lengthen long head where the cables cross over from underneath you. And then you get that deep stretch at the bottom and, and push up. And, uh, I only did two sets as well. And, uh, even got the weight wrong on the first set. I did 17 reps on the first set, increased the weight and then 11 on the second set. And my triceps are still sore, like 
two and a half days later, uh, which first from two sets, which is like crazy to me, especially a cable movement because cable stuff never used to get me sore. So I guess there's something to like really lining up correctly and making the muscle do the work that, that's intending to do it. So uh, super cool as well on my end. It, yeah, I, I yeah. agree. I've been doing that, that same movement, the, the, the lengthened head, um, or sorry, long head lengthened, but I do it single arm so I can just uh, focus my concentration on one arm at a time yeah. as opposed to trying to do both. But agreed, same thing. I, the first time I did, I got stupid sore off the two sets. Yeah. Which is wild. Super cool. I, uh, also just briefly wanted to mention that, uh, both Paragon and Evolved have, uh, have new cycles starting January 3rd. Uh, Paragon starting new across all programs. So, um, whether it's the physique, uh, commercial physique, you get both, uh, you get all the programs, but, um, really good stuff. We also have a new specialty cycle, the, the hybrid lift run cycle. So if you want to train for like a 10 K half marathon type thing, but also want some strength training in there, uh, that would be a great cycle to do. And then on evolved, um, the new idea is, uh, is an ascending RPE cycle. So, um, essentially, kind of hitting like, you know, something like four sets of eight across, uh, four working sets where each set you're moving a little bit closer to failure. So you might go like 70 pounds, 80 pounds, 90 pounds, a hundred pounds across four sets. And, you know, the intention would be that the final set would be at failure or relatively close. And then if you successfully achieve, you know, the, that top rep goal on your final hardest set, then that kind of lets you know that maybe in subsequent weeks you could increase a little bit of load there. So, um, kind of a new idea. It's a way to get more volume in and, um, have sets that count, right? So you have that idea of effective reps and the last five reps really matter and stuff like that. So if you're doing like an RPE six set, which is essentially four reps from failure, that set like still counts. Like it's still a kind of hard set. Um, it just isn't as hard as, you know, going to failure or whatever. So, um, should be a, a cool experiment there on, uh, on the Evolve Physique programs starting January 3rd. And, uh, and yeah, I think we have some questions. We actually got 19 questions um, for our New Year's Q&A. So we'll either, you know, give brief answers and get through all of them, or maybe we'll break it up into two episodes. What do you think? Let's see what happens. Yeah. yeah One yeah. thing I wanted to say uh, before we'll jump into the questions about the the new Evolved um, program that you're starting or that's coming out. Yeah. What I really like about that is it, it, allow, it helps you just get better with weight selection and load mm-hmm. selection, which I know, like you, you just said you, you, you missed, you missed shows with like the tricep one. That's yeah. one that I know a lot of. So it's like, okay, this is my first set of eight. Okay. I'm going to go up again. It's like, it's like exploration of what is the proper load. And it gives you multiple sets to do that, which I think is pretty cool. For sure. Yeah. And you'll just refine that as you go week to week as well. Cool. Um, well, the first question I, I think was, was from one of your people and it's a good question. So I'll read it out for you. Um, aside from not getting a variety of minerals, et cetera, from different food sources and possible food boredom, is there anything suboptimal about eating the same foods day after day for, let's say a month or longer at a time, if that's what's needed to meet your macro goals. This sounds like the old bodybuilding diet to me, just like, you know, six meals a day, always like chicken, rice and broccoli or something like that. So how I'm going to answer this is based off the word optimal. Is this suboptimal? I do believe it's suboptimal. The reason being there uh, is really just micronutrient diversity or sorry, micronutrient um, potential for micronutrient uh, deficiencies if you are not covering something, uh, which you did allude to in your question, but also um, the diversity of your, of your gut microbiome. 
So if you're not eating certain things, you may not be getting certain types of um, beneficial probiotic strains and that sort of things, or different types of prebiotic strains to, or prebiotic fibers to feed those different strains that could over time lead to diminished uh, digestive quality and gut health over time. In, in a short thing of like, hey, three to four weeks because I'm dieting and I just want to make it simple and repeatable, I think this is perfectly fine. And, and, if, and being completely realistic and honest, this is what my diet looks like probably for three weeks at a time. I'll eat mostly the exact same meals just because it's easy. I know how to prep it and I can cook it easily and it allows me to just basically copy paste my days and it's very, very simple. Um, so is it optimal? No, but what is your priority being optimal or reaching your goal? Probably reaching your goal. So in this, I think it's perfectly fine. And then I would say with this approach, if you have a, have a free meal per week or you go out to eat or anything like that, try to order some different vegetables or starches that you normally would just to kind of sprinkle in a little bit more of that diversity of your foods. But other than that, I think this is a pretty, pretty, pretty good approach. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone really not follow this. Yeah, I would say that I am pretty much a creature of habit and tend to eat mostly the same foods. I read a study a number of years ago uh, that most people eat something like 12 or 13 different foods. Like just in in general, that's just like their food selection, which is really, really low. Like I think I I eat more than that. But um, but if you actually go through it and count, it's surprising like how how many foods, how much like 12 or 13 different foods is. But I think most people like for health and micronutrients should be eating should be eating more than that. And, and I, uh, like I, for me, especially when dieting, it's just easier to be regimented and just know that this is what I'm eating each day and not have to think about it. So, um, in that case, you know, I think it, if it makes it, you're hitting your goal easier, it makes sense. And that's kind of where I'll say on that. Yep. I agree. Uh, number two programming perspective slash beliefs we used to hold that have now changed dramatically. You want to start yeah. this one, Brian? It's such a good question. I actually wanted to think about this more, and then I didn't actually think about it more. So now, <laughs> now, now, now we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, but the the first one that came to to my mind, and maybe it's just because of how entwined we are with this right now, but it's the idea of exercise selection and exercise execution, and. I, I do it from a longevity standpoint and maybe that's not fair because I'm now, you know, 39 years old and I've been doing this for 25 years. And, and so I think that these things are of much more importance to me now than they were, um, years ago. But, um, but I would say that, 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 that's one thing I can say for sure has changed and, and has helped me feel better as I get older, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, I, I would say not thinking about, things as body parts, uh, or body areas, I guess. Like, I I don't think I'm going to go train back anymore. So like back in the day I would have a back day and it would be like pull-ups and rows and a pull down and another row. Um, that was pretty much back day. And then maybe like some rear delt flies or something like that. But now I think about the back a lot differently and I, and I program it differently, uh, in that sense too. Again, that kind of intertwines with the exercise selection and execution piece. Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of things from the pre-CrossFit days in programming, like the bro split is one. I mean, I always trained on a bro split and I was even hesitant to switch off the bro split even once science started to kind of go the other way with it because it just always worked for me. And, you know, that goes into the argument of like, if you train on a bro split for 20 years or you train perfectly optimal for 20 years, like, are you ultimately just going to get to the same goal? Because you may just get there faster if you did it optimal, right? But you're going to approach your genetic limit, et cetera. And no one knows the answer to that. Um, but that's one that I would say for sure, I don't program in a bro split in most cases anymore. Um, those are the big ones coming to mind. I'm sure I'll have more after you talk. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah. So the first one that so the immediate one that I think of is is the leg conversation and the squatting mm-hmm. thing that you know you and I have pretty much beat to death on the podcast over over the year because we've talked about it a numerous amount of times. Um, but the more recent one is like I had always kind of historically been a very high volume guy because I know or know and knew that that's what would work or work for me. Like, Hey, I know this training at this volume works for me because I'm still making gains. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've done pretty decently. But that's been a newer one for me is like, hey, and that was some of this last like, you know, three, six months of like seeking out more ed- education on the training side of things is can I get more efficient? Because I'd always like train six days per week um, because I just one, I really liked being there. And two, I was like, well, I need to train six days per week because I need to hit all these things, you know, two times type of thing. Um, but now it's like I've only been training three or four days for like last like eight, eight weeks almost. And things are working, things are going really well. And I think I've just been able to get more efficient and really pinpoint and just get like more targeted with what I'm doing. So Mm -hmm. the effect of each set has like a greater magnitude than the effects of my sets that I would do, you know, earlier this year, prior this year. So Mm -hmm. that's been a big one for me of just making sure that like a set is very, very well performed at an appropriate effort. And I'm not just like kind of checking the box type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a, a big one that I'm still basically knee deep in exploring, but my initial hypothesis is that it can be very, very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say in the like super early days before I even got into coaching, like just when I was training myself and like, you know, internet coaching a couple friends or family members or whatever, like I'm talking about when I'm like 18 to 20, something 22, whatever. Um, I, uh, I've always been a, a lower volume, um, proponent, like even when I first started and I remember coaching a couple of my friends and them not being able to feel like they were getting enough from the volume that was being programmed. And that's when I kind of realized that there was a bit of a dichotomy between those that know how to push intensity and those that don't and how ultimately that programming of whether you're programming volume or intensity for someone or some, you know, combination of the two really depends on whether that individual knows how to push there and get there. And there you can like on a philosophical level, if you can't push there or you don't want to push there, you don't have to, you just have to do more volume to compensate for it. And if you do enjoy pushing there and really trying to become super intricate uh, with your movement, like we have and get the most out of every single rep and et cetera, then you can probably do that with a little bit less volume if you're working closer to failure. Um, but yeah, that would be just a general shift of kind of perspective over time. Yeah. 
All right, I would say I think we we covered that one pretty cool. Well. I'll uh, drop this one over to you. Maybe in tracked maintenance for three months after a long time of inconsistency. Oh, this is actually maybe a better question for me. Is the physique cycle a good one to begin a bulk? Also, I suffer from gastroparesis and can't bulk much. About 300 calorie surplus. Will that do anything? Do you know what gastroparesis is? Yeah, so if I'm I'm getting a slightly outside the the bounds of where I feel very confident speaking, but I believe gastroparesis is a condition where the smooth musculature of your muscle have like they just don't like it's called like motility, right? Which is how your 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 stomach musculature will like move the food through it. Mm-hmm. I think gastroparesis is a condition where it doesn't like function as as well as it should. So it's like you your food doesn't get like pushed through your stomach how it should be, um, which obviously limits the amount of food you can put in. So I think, so what we'll do is I'll answer the second part of the question. Yeah. yeah. The first part back (laughs) to you. So what I would recommend in this context, right? Um, So it's, it's kind of interesting. Gastro, your, 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 the, the smooth musculature of your stomach and that motility is part of mechanical digestion, right? We have two parts of digestion, mechanical and chemical. Chemical is going to be like your hydrochloric acid, your enzymes, those sorts of things. So what you can do in that context that I think, right? And I'm, I'm really purely speculating here. Chew your food better, right? Really take advantage of what you can control. So chew your food really, really, really well. Maybe you always use digestive enzymes to help kind of bolster the um, chemical aspect of the digestion right there um, as well. And then maybe just go with like more smoothies type of things that you, that should be able to get pushed through easier than like, you know, traditional boluses of like chicken or beef or, you know, a starch or something like that. Um, And maybe you go with a higher fat diet. And a lot of that fat comes from like an, an avocado or sorry, like an extra virgin olive oil or avocados or something like that. So you can go with a total lower volume of food by eating a higher propensity of fats than carbohydrate. Um, So those are some options that I would recommend. But will a 300 calorie surplus do anything? Eventually until your body, you know, upregulates to match that and that 300 calories is now maintenance. So in the short term, it will. How quickly you run out of that runway is relative to how, you know, where you're at. But that's, those would be my recommendations, assuming that I know what gastroparesis is. Yeah, and then there's no reason that once that that additional caloric amount becomes your maintenance, there's no reason you probably couldn't go 300 above that again because that is your maintenance, right? So your body should have adapted to that. Um, the physique cycle coming up, I assume you're talking about Paragon, um, since this was a female, I believe. Uh, it is a good time to bulk because the first – Five weeks are a strength cycle. Um, I wouldn't even say bulking is is a good idea. We've talked about this on the other show. It's more like you just want to make sure you're not in a deficit. So being in a 300 calorie surplus sounds like actually the perfect amount um, for a strength cycle so that you're not gaining weight extremely rapidly where you know your leverages are changing and things like that. but yeah, I think it'd be great. And then, uh, you know, the next five weeks after that is a metabolic cycle. So it's going uh, the 12 week cycle is made up of five week strength and then five week, uh, metabolic with a week in between, uh, deload. And, uh, and the metabolic cycle would be a place where you could cut or bulk. Um, because if you bulk, you know, you're just going to give more carbohydrates and glycogen to that body to, to propel it during the, that high kind of glycolytic activity. 
And if you want to cut, then uh, then you can do that as well. I would just probably try to keep carbs up and cut uh, with fats is generally my advice when you're doing a more metabolic approach to your training. So moving on, um, question four, longer question. This person had COVID in October. It was a bad case, tons of fatigue, breathing issues, struggling and feels like they have to choose between work and workout as fatigue is so high for both sleeping nine to 10 hours a night for the last two weeks. All whoop readings are red. Um, used to be an avid hiker, but struggling to work out and walk or get any super consistent movement day to day. Any words of advice or encouragement? Yes. So here, um, if you choose, if you're choosing between working and working out, what is most important for you living your life? Probably work, right? So we're going to choose work. Uh, maybe unfortunately in this acute context, I would not recommend working out. If you are struggling to breathe, you have very, very high amounts of fatigue, just go on walks, right? Non-sweaty, just basic movement, just go on walks. What I would probably recommend doing is very, very, very doubling down on nutrition supplementation in terms of like just maybe like a like like activated methylated forms of of, of a multi covering zinc, vitamin D, like magnesium, your minerals, getting electrolytes in, just making sure that you are like over delivering your body's basic requirements for what it needs, letting letting your body get all the sleep that it's telling you that it needs and not trying to push things too fast. I mean, it, to me, it sounds like one, one thing that I will often say with my, with my clients is like when your body is like sending you these massive signals, like you want to listen. So don't try to like force a workout because you think you need it from reading this. Like you don't need workouts. You need sleep um, and to let your body recover. So that would be my recommendation. Take things very, very slow give yourself some grace and and just give your body the time and resources it needs to recover. Please. Yeah. I agree. I think that's a really good message. And I would say that when you do get to the point that you can go back to training, um, lightweights for low reps, because you don't want to put your uh, cardiovascular system under too much stress. So, um, low reps and lightweights means that it's easy work. And then as you increase weight, I would still keep the reps low so that you're not having to do these long extended sets that are going to really cause you to, to be out of breath. And, uh, and then over time, as you adapt, you should be able to, you know, slowly work into the higher rep ranges again. One last little bit I have there, um, regarding the whoop. If, if it's fucking with you, just, just put it in a drawer for like a month or two. Like if you, Mm -hmm. if you wake up every day and you're exhausted and you feel like shit, you don't need your wearable to tell him like, Hey, you've recovered like (laughs) shit. Don't do anything today. You know what I mean? Cause it's just like, what do they call that? Like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, of, of a negative loop. Just put it in the drawer for a couple weeks and then listen to your body signaling a little bit and then pull it back out once you're out of the woods a little bit there. Yep. Totally. Cool. This one I'll kick over to you, Brian. Yep. So I am super confused on failure training is one set to failure enough. Why would I want to do two sets ever? Is this better? Would you try to hit failure on every exercise in a workout? If safety isn't an issue. (laughs) where to begin sometimes one sets enough sometimes it's not um i i don't think that in most cases you want to take every exercise in a workout to failure 
And I also think that it's really, really, really important to distinguish between different types of exercises. Um, so you will never or very, very rarely will you see me take an RDL to the point where I can't stand up with the weight with good form. Like I remember once maybe in the last 10 years doing an RDL where I got to the bottom and I was like, nope, not standing up and just kind of dropped the weight. And then the set was over. That would be failing an RDL, right? Um, I don't advise that. Um, whereas if you're doing like a, a, an incline dumbbell curl, I, I don't really have a huge problem with you going to failure or like a cable tricep extension. I don't really often think that squats should be taken to failure, like free weight barbell squats. I think if you're going to go to failure, you know, you're better off doing failure under the constraints of a machine with stability, like a hack squat, pendulum squat, leg press type thing. Even on a leg press, I think that any, any of those movements, failure is still something you probably want to avoid more than you would want to avoid it on like a lateral raise or a curl or a tricep extension or something like that because the exercises are so profound and damaging and systematic, systemically fatiguing that you can get a distinct benefit from them without having to go close to failure. So the, the opportunity cost is not in your favor to take those sets to failure. Um, so I think uh, first off, distinguishing between those, the different movements and failure is important. Um, but when it comes to, to movements that are stable and controlled and single joint for the most part, I, 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 I sure, if you want to take those movements to failure, I don't think that's a problem, but I think that it should probably fit into the context of how your cycle is designed, right? So the way that I design general programs, as I've discussed, is that I start uh, week one after deload week with like two or three reps from failure. And then I provide you that runway where now every week you can add either a rep or a little bit of load so that eventually by week four or five or six, when we deload, you are now at failure for your movements. So I think that this is a really good framework for most people to follow in a general program where it gives you that kind of assessment period at the end of each, you know, four to six week build before you deload again. So in that case, going to failure every workout would be a bad idea because you're not actually following the program. Um, if you do go to failure, you're probably going to find that your volume doesn't need to be as high. So that's one consideration as well. Uh, you have to kind of decide, are you the type of person that's going to benefit from one set to failure or a, a one set plus a back offset, or would you do better with four sets not to failure? Um, so I really don't know that there, I can't expand a whole lot more on that. I hope that that helps clarify some of your confusion on failure training. Um, but it really is situationally and individually dependent. Yeah, I think you answered that really, really well. I think for this person, explore a little bit, especially around like the single joint stuff, tricep extension, bicep curl, you know, uh, lateral raise type thing. These things are, well, a lot of them are, sh are shortened overload. So it's a little bit easier because then that you're failing at that part of the muscle. But would I be like, yeah, go out and explore failing back squats? Like, no, I really wouldn't <laughs> say that. The one thing I, the last thing I will add on this is for a lot of those larger, more compound movements, so like bench press style movements, squat patterns, hack squat, those sorts of things. This is something that hit me on my last leg day that I wanted to talk about and then promptly forgot when I left the gym. Fear will generally set in before failure. So if you're wondering like how close you are to failure, but you're not scared yet, you're probably not that close. Um, that's something that I found out when I was in training legs and I realized like, 
I'm fucking scared because I don't know if I'm going to make this next rep or not. And then I would still always make that next rep. So I realized that like fear would will set in probably around like a true two RIR where you start questioning whether you can still perform the rep or not before you will hit like an actual failure on like a larger compound type thing. Obviously for a tricep extension where the weight's not over top of you or anything like that, there's nothing to be scared of. But for like the compounds, that is a a decent subjective marker is fear will generally set in before failure occurs. Yep. And dumbbell bench press is actually a pretty good one that if you're comfortable with dumbbell bench, you could push to failure on because you can just kind of dump the dumbbells if you need to. Whereas barbell bench is a... Probably one you would want to reconsider or at least have a spotter. Yeah. Um, cool. Best way to load a sissy squat. Is it a weighted vest? I think so. Cause it's yeah. going to be the closest to your, you know, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Your, like your yeah. center of gravity, center, yeah. center of mass, how you're performing it because yeah. you're going to manipulate your body. So if you're hanging a dumbbell or something like that, that's going to really, make it more complicated. That's what I would recommend. Anything for you, Brian? Yeah, I think weighted vest is probably best too. Um, I just thought of an idea where maybe you're standing on like a riser between where there's a gap in between and you could potentially do it with a dip belt. Um, but I feel like the safety precaution, you'd need something to hold on to for stability. Um, but that would kind of, I feel like that might be in line with the resistance a little bit better without, cause the, the, anything on your torso theoretically could push your torso forward into hip flexion a little bit. But I mean, that's really nitpicking. I think a weighted vest is a really solid solution and, and a much safer solution than using a dip belt and standing on platforms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. This next one is a nice message from, uh, from one of the guys that follows me on Instagram. Uh, he said, thank you for all your knowledge and assistance throughout the year. And it's been super cool following his journey too. Cause he, uh, he really pays attention to, to all of the, the nuance of movement stuff that I talk about and watching him move now compared to where he was a year ago is, uh, is crazy. Like he moves like me, like I watch him work out now and I feel like I'm watching myself. So, um, very impressive. Very cool. All right. This person said, uh, I'm in a training rut for myself. What good resources can you suggest? I would look into potentially why you're in a training rut. Mm-hmm. So I have found personally, my training ruts will set in when I have a lot of stress going on. So for instance, being fully transparent with everyone, I'm in a bit of a training rut right now. I'm also kind of fucking stressed out right now with a lot of the things that I'm hundred percent my doing, taking on and and doing. Uh, I would just say, have some grace for yourself, right? Take in a couple extra days off, just go for a walk, spend some time out in the sun. You know, if you're fortunate somewhere where the sun is out at this time of the year, sleep a little bit more, right? Put a little bit, you know, maybe grab some extra supplementation for like mood or something like that. Like maybe some maca or something. If, if you're male here, um, just take it easy for a little bit. Or in terms of training, then go play a little bit. Maybe go off of your training and just go have some fun and try different things and explore and just take it a little bit less seriously. And if you are someone who's like, you know, Brian or myself, we're like training is our thing. I think it will always be our thing. You will have ebbs and flows and just realizing that you might be in a, oh fuck, is ebb up or down? I shouldn't have used that example. It ebbs and flows. It goes up and it goes down. Okay. So if you are in a, is a flow with being down and ebb is up, 
That's, I guess, sure. it's a bad example. I'm sorry. So if you are in a low point, just know that it eventually will pick back up and just give yourself a little bit of grace and don't try and force it. Yeah. I remember I would feel this way a lot before I became like a professional in the industry when it was like post-college and I was working a government corporate job. I would always sit there and just be like, do I really want to go train? Like, what am I training for? Like, what's the purpose? You know, um, I really just want to go eat a cheesesteak type thing. And it it's a, it's a very gray line, but sometimes doing the program hopping thing can help you. Like maybe it's just the the type of program that you're doing at the moment isn't one that's aligning with what you want. Right. So even though we know as perfect examples, even though we know that, you know, hitting a body part twice a week is generally better than once a week. So maybe right now you're doing an evidence-based like upper, lower, upper, lower split. And you're just like, man, like, I just don't enjoy this training right now, et cetera. Like go do a bro split, go do like a, a month of a bro split or, even alternatively, like maybe just train less. So that was one thing, like Aaron said, he's in a rut right now, but he's training three or four times a week and he's having some of the best gains of his life because he's giving himself the grace to recover. Um, and then that's motivating because even though you're not training as often, you go in and you're like, I'm improving. That's super cool. Uh, so my ruts back in the day in like 2008, my ruts would send me to a new program. So I remember I would jump between max OT and then pyramid training, where it would be like, you know, 15, 12, nine, six type thing. And I would, it would be like, okay, I'm over max OT. It's just too much heavy weight. I want to go do, you know, a series of, of pyramid training. And then I'd go do some of that. And then I'd jump back to max OT or something like that. Um, so maybe changing up can help the, the way that I would handle this 10 years later. Um, instead of 2007, now we're looking at like 2017, is I would just lower frequency, like Aaron said. So the way that I would get myself out of ruts back then would be just do two full body workouts a week. And I would just do compound movements. I wouldn't do any arm work. I would just go in and do like a push pull legs on one day and then take a few days off and do a push pull legs on the next day. So, um, basically like three movements is what I'm saying. Like one push, one pull and one legs. So basically that that's how I would get myself out of them. Uh, as far as resources, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know the resources that we would say, like the N1 guys, the 3DMJ guys. Um, I like, you know, listening to the Revive Stronger podcast. They always, uh, good to hear them talk about stuff and their journey and stuff like that too. So I really like listening to other people's journeys and I've talked to other people online about this too, but you know, some of these people, um, that I follow, I follow them even less sometimes for their training knowledge and more for just because I like following their journey and like seeing them work toward their goals and, and how they're going about it. So, um, so anyways, things like that, that might help. Cool. Next we have full body routines, fatigue me too much for the final few exercises. Should I switch up the order? Yeah, uh, full body routines fatigue me for the final few exercises too. But um, but I don't know that switching up the order is a good idea. So in, in theory, what I would assume is that you're doing your compound movements first and then you're getting really tired and you're finding that you don't want to do your like arms and abs and calves and stuff like that. So um, I, I don't think that doing your arm work and ab work before – your compound movements is a good idea. You're just going to get significantly less out of your, out of your, um, compound movements. However, 
I do think that with a full body routine, you do have a little bit of freedom because if you're doing, say, three full body workouts a week, you could have two of them where you just focus on the compound movements. So maybe you don't do the arms, calves, abs and stuff, right? So you'd have like a day where it's like just part A through D or A through E and you're really just doing compound movements for the most part. And then you could have one day where maybe you have like two compound movements and then you have a whole bunch of like arms, abs, and calves stuff. Um, so there is a lot of freedom in ways that you can still put those exercises in a position where they can receive intensity and focus without having to always do them before the compound movements, which I think would have a kind of overall negative effect on the amount of load that you can move, the amount of focus that you can put into those movements and things like that. Um, not to mention the safety aspect of compound movements, just being a little more dangerous. So, um, trying to do your squats at the end, if you're not used to doing squats at the end could be a bad idea for you. Um, but I do think you have some freedom there. And then alternatively, you could just not follow a full body routine because if like, I, like I find every time I've done full body routines, if I'm trying to do it in like a bodybuilding form and not a, um, I'll call it maintenance, but kind of like a strength focus type thing. Anytime I try to do a full body bodybuilding routine, it's the same thing. Like by the time you get to the small stuff at the end, there's just no energy and focus for it. And you just end up wanting to skip it because shit, your arms already got hit with all your benching and pull downs. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Answered it perfectly. Cool. Well, I'm going to toss this next one over to you because yeah, just cause how to get over a breakup. Aaron, did you know that we are now official breakup artists here? The chemistry was amazing. And three months later, I am worse off. That is the question. There's actually not a question mark. The, the how to get over a breakup is the question mark. The chemistry was amazing. And three months later, I'm worse off is the, uh, the information. So what do you do with that? Do you know if this question was from male or a female? Ooh. Do you remember? I can check. How about that? I'll check. I'll check real I quick. Don't, I don't think it's necessary. Okay. Okay. So I was going to take it. There's there's like a joke way I'm going to take it and then a serious way. So the joke way, I was like, you just bury your, you bury your emotions in the gym getting super jacked so that you can throw <laughs> it in that person's face and show them what they're missing. But the joke was, um, I was assuming this question was coming from a male, but the only thing that's going to happen is other guys are going to be like, oh, sick gains, bro. And the girls just don't (laughs) fucking care is what we've ultimately realized. Um, The serious way I'm going to answer this question is I would recommend either a breakup coach. This is a very real thing. There's people out there who do very well, make a great living helping people in situations like this. Or just go see some therapy. Go get a therapist and and help talk through the the feelings you have around it. So, I would recommend you know both of those hundred percent because it's three months later. You say you're worse off. Someone can out there can help you with that, and it could be something that you discover something pretty big about yourself, which will help you with future relationships. Just becoming more confident in what you bring to the table, or any kind of maybe uh, some some like ill perceptions of self is basically what I want to say. So ask for some help. There are tons of people out there to do it. Uh, I know of two through my girlfriend, Jenny, because she's had them as clients of her nutrition. So um, if person out there submitted this question, if, if you, if you listen to this, ping me, I can help point you in the right direction for sure. Sweet. Yeah. I have, uh, I've been with Kim since I was 22 years old, I think. So maybe 23, but that's like 16 or 17 years now. So I, it's been a really long time since I've had a breakup. 
Um, I can just say that for me, I do remember in college, um, it really helped to just throw myself into something that allowed me to stay occupied. And in college, it was, it was a mix of training and video games. Um, so, so maybe there's like an adult version of that now. Yeah. I I will say the last, the breakup I went through, I literally just buried myself in the gym. It's, it's, it, what's what allowed my relationship with, uh, CrossFit to really flourish. And I literally just buried myself in the gym and went seven days a week. <laughs> nice. It worked yeah, out. I mean, you know, it's, it, uh, it's healthier it probably than, than than dealing with the emotions of the breakup. So, yep. Um, let's see. What do we got here? Best way to optimize upper body training when you can't train lower body with a broken leg. Do you want to take a stab at it? I will take a stab at this. So, what we have here is a shift in recovery capacity because you will not be training your legs, which have a large amount of uh, systemic fatigue and that sort of thing. You can basically just take all of the calories you're eating and your sleep and just shove that towards upper body recovery. So what you could do here is just take a pretty high frequency um, upper body approach. So, I mean, you could probably even just do like two muscles per day or even just run like a, a, like a, a split, but much more frequent and just crank up the volume on your upper body. So that's exactly what I would recommend doing in this scenario. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're on the same the same wavelength here. I think that the way you do the upper body is splitting it into push and pull so that there's as little crossover as possible um, between between those days. And then essentially you could just go back to back days, um, take a rest day whenever you feel like you need it. You know, um, I do think that there is some value in training your good leg if possible. Studies have shown that there is actually like increased uh, benefit to the broken leg when you train the good leg. Um, and those are both coordination and healing based, I believe, although I, I'm not hundred percent sure on the healing based side. It does, it does help with coordination piece. Um, so, so I would definitely do that. Like if you can, you know, obviously if you have a broken leg, you can't be doing like single leg squats. Um, that would not be safe. However, you can go into a, a leg curl, leg extension, and possibly even a single leg press um, machine if that leg is able to get out of the way and allow you to do single leg work in there. So um, if that's the case and you can train that other leg, then I would um, with a little bit of volume. You know, maybe it's like you follow a push, pull, single leg rest split or something like that. And you just rotate through that like that. So that would probably be the way I'd handle it. Yeah. Last thing I would say there is you can get, it can be pretty cool when you are really just prioritizing stuff. So, um, I never broke my leg, but I did have a cast on from, from an Achilles rupture. And I remember I just did a shit ton. This was back in my CrossFit days of pull-ups and handstand push-ups. And I remember I could do like 12 strict chest to bar pull-ups at like by the time that my cast was like off and I could start using my leg again. So you can, you can do some pretty cool stuff just by hyper focusing on there. So definitely don't try and be as, as optimistic as you can and know that you can make some pretty cool different types of gains uh, with the limitations you do have. 
philosophically, that's actually like one of my favorite things about training is the way that it teaches you or allows you to find optimism, even in like really soul crushing situations where like, imagine if you didn't have training and you broke your leg and you were just like, fuck, well now I'm just going to sit here and like be depressed for six months or whatever. Like, uh, for me, I find that training allows me to find positivity and creativity in, in a lot of places in life where I otherwise wouldn't. Agreed. Cool. Um, how do you assess how you are recovering and when you need to take a rest day instead of train? You listen to your body. This one's, this one's really, really interesting. So I think, and I have been here, I know from, from personal, if this is one of the reasons why I'm a super, super big fan of being objective and tracking your metrics for, for workouts, you know, week to week and stuff like that. Because if you're not progressing, this might be one that you're not, you know, giving yourself ample recovery time. Or if you're like training a muscle that's still pretty sore, um, this is another one where you will probably, I won't even say probably, you will do better off from adding an extra recovery day in there. If you're someone who feels like you, you're always super, super recovered and you never need a rest day, don't sound, I don't, I don't say this to sound like, you know, rude or whatever, but like, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. Um, so those are my few takes on it. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I talk about this a lot, but I tend to use motivation as the main piece. Like if I want to work out, then I work out and I'm excited about it. And if I don't want to work out, it's very rare that I will make myself go work out unless I know that like the next day or two, I'm going to be super busy. We're going to be on vacation. Something's going to be happening and like, I can't work out. Um, but those are really the only times that I won't just listen to my body, take a rest day and then, and then come in and hit it the next day. So, um, I think that that's kind of, it's kind of an unfair answer because it, it it assumes that you are as motivated as I am inherently. And you may be part of that audience that has to get yourself excited to go to the gym. Like you have to kind of push yourself and in which case you can't just utilize your, your internal drive. And in that case, I would just make sure that you're probably hitting, you know, three days a week. I think that if you're hitting three days a week and then don't force yourself to, to go more than that, it's probably a pretty good safe place to be. Um, this is an interesting question. So there's no context. So I, I'm just going to give one quick answer and then I'll pass it over to you. But the question is reverse or recovery diet. And I would say that it depends how lean you're getting. What do you say? I love this question because this is something <laughs> I've been thinking about so much and I am starting to really foster my thoughts around the specific context of it. So this is going to be my first public stab. Here we go. <laughs> a reverse diet is necessary to prepare you for a calorie deficit in, in certain contexts. It's not always 100% required, but in general uses, you use a reverse diet to prepare you for a calorie deficit. You use a recovery diet to recover from a calorie deficit. So one is kind of on the back end, one is kind of on the front end. So generally, you need a recovery diet to help reestablish either endocrine function at a, at a higher level, metabolic function, or the, the kind of general adaptations that occur when you are at a calorie deficit for, for a prolonged period of time. You generally use a recovery or a reverse diet 
when people have in maybe some degree of quote unquote calorie deficit, but really just underfeeding calorie deficit without the benefits of the calorie deficit, like the fat loss and looking better type of thing, or their lifestyle has just been not very conducive and they're moving into this healthy lifestyle. So you're using that to prepare them, get them to a place to where then you can leverage a proper calorie deficit to elicit the fat loss effect that you want. The recovery diet would be on the opposite, coming out of the bottom end, helping restore you back to a better, more, um, you know, hormonally and metabolically efficient, or I, I guess I should say inefficient place while you keep all that fat loss that you just worked your ass off for. Yeah. I, in the beginning I said, depends how lean you're getting. So I'll give an example here and I think I'll iterate it pretty well, illustrate it. Um, so I did my diet recently down to 182, which was lean, but not like super duper unhealthy lean. And, uh, so in that case, I think the right approach would be to reverse diet out of it where I would essentially get up to the high one eighties or one ninety, at which point I would then diet down to like what would be stage lean at like one seventy or something like that. And then once I get down to one seventy, then I need to recovery diet out of one seventy um to get back up into the one eighties as quickly as possible. Whereas the the diet the reverse diet from one eighty two to one ninety is essentially to set me up for that really long diet down to one seventy. Um, in a superset, do we start with the short or lengthen movement first and why? Uh, that you're going to have to answer. This <laughs> so it, it depends what you're trying to achieve. I mean, the, 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 why is the more important part of that question. So the second movement in a same muscle group superset is going to be the one that achieves the majority of the stimulus. So as an example, if you're going from a cable crossover type movement into a bench press type movement, it is going to be a, uh, the bench press is going to receive more of the stimulus. So you're going to get more of the lengthened overload stimulus. Whereas if you went from bench press into cable crossover, you would get more of the shortened overload stimulus. So it depends what you're trying to achieve in what place of the training year, this objective exists. And then you determine uh, which one you should use for that purpose. If you had to make that super simple, what do you think would, what do you think, which, which of the two do you think would exist in the most widely proper context? Yeah. So I think that the idea of, of if, if your goal is hypertrophy, the idea of, of having the lengthened overload be the more prominent overload, meaning that you would go from cable crossover to, to bench press, uh, would be the more applicable use for a hypertrophy phase. But in a, a metabolic phase, uh, you would want to have the short overload be the second movement because it would receive more of the stimulus. So it, it kind of goes back to that, that, to that phasic idea. Um, however, there's also the idea of one of those two options being pre-exhaust and the other one post-exhaust. So that kind of plays into that equation as well. Um, so I'm trying to think of an, of an, of a, example that's different where um the short overload movement could be the compound movement and the lengthened movement would be the the uh, okay so what if you went from like say dumbbell fly because now the isolation movement is lengthened instead of the crossover where the isolation movement is shortened so you go from dumbbell fly and then you go into a, a cable press which is essentially like a short overloaded chest movement then now you have 
you could you could do so you you could do the fly second. So the fly would be the lengthen movement, and you would do that second. So you could get the isolation movement second, but still get the the lengthened overload that you're going for. So exer- that's where exercise selection might play an important piece too, because like in my general programs, I use a fly and a crossover interchangeably because they're both isolation chest movements. Because I don't know if someone has access to a commercial gym or two cable stations for that matter. So I have to give that option. So to me, in my mind, I'm making the decision that it is more important that this person does an isolation chest movement than it is that I'm trying to chase a lengthened or a shortened overload, right? Um, and so that's where things can kind of get complicated because yes, they're both isolation movements, but they do overload the muscle at different positions. So whether someone chooses a fly or a crossover does in a small way impact the stimulus they're going to get from that movement. And that's just kind of the way that it is in a general program, you know? I'm really glad I brought up that that secondary part because you answered that very, very well. Cool, cool. Uh, cable machines. Does it get harder or easier as you move closer to the cable stack? Yeah, so it should get easier as you move closer to the cable stack. Um, a perfect example of that is when we did the Y raises at N1. And we would start further back and basically go to failure. And then you would take like two steps in and you'd be able to get a couple more reps. So that would be the answer there. Do you know why? Like, is it like a little bit more of an explanation? Is it just like... So the cable, it, the, the, the cable pulls on you more, the further you are from it. Um, I'm sure there's a potential answer that has to do with the angle that the cable is coming out as well. Um, but yeah, I don't feel really confident answering that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't either, but I, I agree. It's like, yeah, when you're closer, it's easier. But I was like, I wonder if Brian knows like the, the yeah. actual reason why, but no, it's a cast question. Probably. Yeah. It's definitely a cast question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this next one, I think we have to kick over to you. I, I okay. believe I could take a stab at it, but I think you would do a better job answering it. Yeah. Um, how does a narrow or wide stance impact a glute bridge? Yeah. So uh narrow stance is going to be the way that you pretty much want to do it in most cases. If you want it to be just a, a standard glute max movement, like for your butt, you want to work the butt, you want to grow the butt. You should probably have your feet pretty narrow because that lines up with the, uh, the glute max really well. The wider that you go in any movement where your feet are planted, you're going to be calling in the adductors for help. Uh, those are going to be the big muscles that run on the inner thigh between the, uh, the hip and the knee. So, um, so anyways, yeah, the wider you go, like if you're doing an RDL with a wide stance or you're doing a squat with a wide stance or a glute bridge with a wide stance, um, that's going to ask your adductors for help. They're going to get a stretch at the bottom of the movement. You'll be able to feel that. And, uh, and that will help you ascend the weight up. So, um, yeah, feet narrow for glutes and then wide, you'll get glutes for sure, but you'll also get some adductors, probably less glutes. Uh, question I have for you is, is how I would have taken this, um, question potentially incorrectly. So that's why I'm going to kick it over to you as the legs go out wider to some degree, wouldn't there necessary to, to reach your full kind of hip extension? Wouldn't you need a little bit of external rotation as well? Yeah. And wouldn't that kind of pull in a little bit more like uh like glute med as opposed to like the glute max? 
So I think this is that whole, it's, it begins to infringe on the whole like sumo deadlifts aren't glutes thing. Um, because essentially when you do that, you're, you're using the piriformis muscles underneath the glutes and not actually using the glutes. Um, when you, you know, turn the toes out and externally rotate. Um, so that's why I think it would be a little bit less glutes and it would just be more adductors, uh, if you did that. And I think there would also be potentially some jamming too. Like I could imagine if you're out too wide, like having the hips just not really feel good as you get to extension. Um, so in my opinion, I would just put the feet narrow and make it a glute movement. You know, there are many other ways we can train the adductors. Yep. I, so I agree a hundred percent with what Brian says. And then what I would say to this person or anyone who wants to explore, if you're like doing some warm up sets, like when you, and you want to find that when you have your feet a little bit wider, see if you can feel that jamming a little bit at the top of the movement and then move your feet in to a more narrow stance and see if you can get a little bit more kind of terminal hip extension at the mm-hmm. full end range of that movement by making space, by moving your feet in. So play around with it a little bit, but ultimately I think, uh, what Brian said is correct. Um, okay. So I believe this question is for you because it didn't come to me. <laughs> uh, in your current setup, are you hitting upper body three times per week and lower two times per week? Yeah, actually, no. So, um, it just changed as I discussed at the beginning of the episode. So the way that it was set up was a five day cycle across eight calendar days and it went, uh, legs, then chest and back then hamstrings with shoulders and arms, then quads, and then full upper body. So I guess in that way, there were three upper body days and there were also three lower body days because there was one day that had both upper body and lower body on it. But now I'm going to be taking the full leg day and splitting that into a ham day and a quad day, just like the second leg day. Um, so in that sense, I think that uh, we're essentially going to have now uh, four leg days and three upper body days, which is seven sessions, seven total, but it's across six training days because I have that hamstring and shoulder day still. Um, and so I think that that's going to that's gonna work really well. That's where the setup is now. And I'll update you guys if anything changes with that. Fantastic. Uh, this is a super interesting question. Do you want to take a stab at it first? Or you sure. want to ask it for me? Sure, I'll I'll try. All right. Who would get better results and why? These are my favorite kind of questions. A person training with only lengthened movements, or a person with an even mix between lengthened, shortened, and mid range mid range movements. So essentially, the lengthened movements would be these highly damaging things like dumbbell flies, RDLs, things that are heaviest at the bottom, and your short range movements are things that are hardest at the top essentially more or less. Um, the person didn't specify whether in this theoretical example that we're doing volume equated training or not. So that's one piece of context that we would need to, to put into consideration too. I'm going to assume we would do, uh, we would equate volume just because to remove confounding variables there. Yeah. I would only have to say that well, I guess the results in terms of hypertrophy, right? Physique, you know, is that, the, that our goal, right? Is that what we're talking about? Getting jacked yeah, here? Yeah. I'm going to assume the person with an even mix between lengthened, shortened, and mid-range because the best physiques in the world 
the champions train that way. I'm sure, sh- <laughs> and I don't mean to say this to be a dick. I'm sure someone has had this thought before and experimented with it, and it probably <laughs> didn't turn out that way. So um, that is what I am hoping would be, you know, rely. I can rely on to make that answer, but. Uh, I know for, for certain things like the, the, the classic example of like the quad, you use the leg extension because that's the only way to fully train the rec fam type of deal. Um, so it's, I'm going to assume and uh, well, also he, this person also said an even mix, right? So right, it didn't just right. say an, a mix, it said an right. even mix. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, now now, because now part. you're, you're, you're taking a lot of those really beneficial lengthened movements and you're like, no, I can't have 66% of my training be lengthened. I have to have a third of it be lengthened. Yeah. But, but on the other side of the spectrum, mid range is sort of the same as lengthened. Like I feel like it's really ambiguous between what's lengthened and what's mid range, like a reverse banded hack squat maybe could be a mid range overload. Whereas a non reverse banded, a uh, hack squat might be lengthened, but mm-hmm. they're both still a hack squat. Um, I do think that one issue you would have if you only trained lengthened is how to turn some movements into like, like, like training the, the lateral delts only training them lengthened. I mean, I guess you get one movement. Essentially you get like a behind the back, like cable lateral raise. Super I don't exactly heavy. You, like, you half yeah, rep it. <laughs> I don't I don't exactly know how you would do certain muscle groups. Mm-hmm. You could train the rec fem with sissy squats. Like you don't have to do a leg extension, so you could just do sissy yeah. squats and stuff. I mean, it's it's actually like a really good question because when you think about having to split that volume 33 33 33 and you know that like the lengthened is the most beneficial, my thought is complete conjecture, but I think in an acute short-term study of like 6 to 12 weeks, we'd probably see more hypertrophy in the group that did just lengthened movements. But I think that long-term over the course of a training career, the person that mixes them up would probably end up at a, at a higher place eventually with less injuries. Yeah. The, the hard question that comes into my mind, because we know that lengthened movements are going to be more like damaging and fatiguing is how you can truly equate the volume and how you can truly recover from all the purely lengthened over. Like imagine if you just did like RDL type stuff for your hamstring training and you right, had to right. do like. Well, seated leg sets. curl would essentially, you could do like a, you could rig a seated leg curl up to be like a lengthened overload. Like I can with the, the cam on my machine. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying though. Like, yeah, you'd have to do so much like hip hinge volume. Um, and like even something like a, a 45 degree hip extension, it's a, a short overload movement. It's a short overload movement. That's a hip hinge, which is it, it like doesn't exist. Otherwise, like you can't do any other hip hinge short overloaded. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question that kind of has my, my mind spinning a little bit. Yeah, it is definitely very, it's like the more I think about it, the less confident I feel like I could say <laughs> yeah. anything about it. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's a very, very interesting question. And it so. just, it makes me want to be like, why, why is this person so ridiculous that someone would just do lengthened overload movements forever? Like, I just like think about it and I'm like, wait, but no, like, you know, yeah. um, anyways, yeah. yeah, enough of so. that. We've kind of butchered that one. So we have one question left. It's a nutrition one. So I'm going to throw it over your way. Um, advice on moving away from scale and macro tracking and irrational fear of loss of control. So I want to 
be very, very clear in how I answer this, this question and just be with like trepidation here. When I see this sort of, sort of things, it's, I don't think it's the scale. I don't think it's the macros or the food scale. It's psychological. So I think it's generally more deeply rooted, um, there. So I would just get a little bit clear with yourself, ask yourself questions around it. So with that being said, how I move into it and what I recommend for my clientele, what I personally do myself here is I truly believe that when you have objective-based goals, tracking your food, measuring your body composition, those sorts of things is the most optimal way to do it. So people ask me like, Aaron, why are you still tracking your food? Because I still have goals around that. However, there will be periods of times where I do not. But what I have, you know, really rooted from all this tracking and stuff are repeatable structures. So for you, when you're moving away, I would recommend leveraging these repeatable structures. And what do I mean by that? Every day, not every day, probably over the course of the, of a 30 day month, 24 of those days, I have five meals per day. One of them is like a snack. So like four and a half meals per day. I just follow that still. I know I generally eat when I wake up. My second meal is generally around noon. I'll eat approximately, you know, 20 minutes after I get home from the gym. I eat at approximately six to seven 30 and then around nine again. So I'll just leverage that. And every single meal has approximately the same exact composition. I have a lean primary protein source, a starchy carbohydrate or a fruit and vegetables. My fats get kind of sprinkled in throughout different things. I use cooking oil. I might have a little bit of dark chocolate at night, some avocado with my um, breakfast, but a majority of the time I'm eating a lower amount of fat. I just generally prefer a higher carbohydrate diet. That's what I know my body does better with from my lab work as well. So find that those structures that have put you at approximately maintenance calories from your tracking, right? And then be like, okay, if I'm not going to track anymore, what is going to, what structures and habits are going to allow me to basically re effortlessly recreate that day by just remembering a couple basic things. Like, have I eaten three meals per day today or only two? Am I going to have time to get five in? No, then I'm only going to have four and that's perfectly fine. But what you don't want to do is just be like winging it every single day, because then things are going to fluctuate. You might end up, you know, um, uh, uh, unconsciously under eating by a large degree, which is then going to impact your training, you know, hormones, all these other sorts of things. So focus on the repeatable structures. Always look at the health side of things first. So like sleep, trying to get some sunlight, going on a couple walks, just spending some time outside, finding things you enjoy. And then what are very basic ground principles that allow you to basically recreate 85%, 90% of your calories, you know, day to day. So everything else will remain pretty much constant, assuming that where you are now is in a good place and where you want to keep them. So again, this is, I'm always very uh, hesitant and I want to make sure I'm, I'm trepidatious in answering these types of questions, but that is what I would recommend doing. Um, and if you find that, if you have that fear of control, I don't think tracking your food is in, is the best choice um, or the skill right now. Put them away and just focus on the basics. Brian, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you smashed that. You you pretty much took all the words out of my mouth and said them better. Um, 
So yeah, I, I was going to recommend just, you know, finding a meal plan type thing, um, you know, eventually, and it may be a three days, like, like you literally eat the same thing maybe for three days, just so you find your kind of routine and pattern. And then maybe you have that freedom of, of switching out veggies for veggies, starches for starches. Like, you know, you can have an oatmeal or a rice or a potato or quinoa or kind of whatever, you know, starch you want. And then proteins for proteins within a range, you know, not going to like a super fatty ribeye from like chicken breast, but you know, within a range of, of types of proteins. And my guess is if you've been tracking, um, and weighing for as long as, as you say you have, then, uh, you probably have a decent eye and it, since maintenance is a range and you're not going to gain or lose weight if you're, you know, two or 300 above or below alternating days for a number of weeks, like you're just going to kind of be the same. Um, I would just kind of start getting comfortable with that. Um, I'm at a point now where I, I weigh every piece of meat that I do, but only because I like to play the guessing game where I look at it first and I'm like, this one is going to be 4.8 ounces, you know, and then I put it on and it's like 5.0 and I'm like, yep, close enough. That's pretty good. Um, so, so I enjoy that just from like a, a kind of just psychological game of, of proving to myself that I've got it. Um, but, uh, but I think that you'll find that you are able to do the same thing just from all those years of, of doing it. The last thing I will add there that you, something you said, Brian, um, um, helped me remember this like quantities of like foods have like macronutrients. So if you were generally doing approximately 150 grams of a rice, and that was like your starch for your meal too, if you go to like approximately 150 grams of like a couscous, you know, um, oats are hard because you weigh them, you know, cooked versus dry type of thing. But like another type of starch, you're going to have approximately like 80% of the exact same proteins, fats, and carbs out of it. Um, so this is like very powerful to understand. So one that's really kind of gets bastardized is, um, oh boy, lentils, right? People think like, oh my God, lentils are super high in protein. Like they're these like this crazy high amount of protein. For a carbohydrate, yes, they are higher than other carbohydrates, but it's not like a hundred, a hundred grams of like boiled lentils is gonna be like 30 grams of protein, and a hundred grams of you know brown rice is gonna be like zero grams of protein. No, I mean it, it might be like four versus like seven. So relative, it's a large difference, but in absolute, like it's fucking three grams of protein on the whole day. Like it's, it's, and it's lower quality protein that we're not really even like that. It's not that important to our day. Exactly. So just like, as long as you're eating the same similar structures of meals and rotating, like mostly lean proteins, mostly kind of starches type fruits and leveraging just like your hunger and, and, and satiety signaling, like you can largely recreate your day to astonishing accuracy as yep. long as you're in a good position and understanding how to read your hunger and hunger and fullness cues and knowing like approximately it looks this big on my same plate each day. Like you'd be amazed at what you can do with that understanding. Yep. For sure. Well, uh, I think we've set everyone up for success in their new year so far. I hope so. I think this was a, <laughs> this was a fun episode. We had some different questions. The relationship one was really interesting yeah. as well. I, I can't believe people are asking us those types of questions, but it's amazing. We it's made amazing. It. And I, I, that one I do feel convicted in. If that person reaches out to me, I will help 
put you on the on the right path yeah. to, to people that can help you with that for sure. And guys, if you've made it this far, drop comments below. Let us know which person would end up with better results. The person that does only lengthened movements or the person that does lengthened mid-range and shortened in an even split. Yeah, that one's a really that was that one like stumped <laughs> me. I don't I don't have a clue to be completely honest. <laughs> I know. So uh anything else from you, Brian? Nah, man, we're good. We'll talk next week. Cool. As always, guys, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for support. It's been, you know, just over a year now with the podcast. It's been just amazing for me. I know Brian has been as well. So that guys, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Eat, Train, Prosper. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe or share us with your friends. You can find more from Aaron at strakernutritionco.com and more from Brian at evolvedtrainingsystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.